Thanks for listening to my podcast, EMS History, Myth, and Media. This episode is history-based, the history of EMT and paramedics in the United States. Please keep listening. In the episode in which I recounted the history of military field hospitals, I started centuries ago. Well, I cannot do that with EMTs and paramedics in America. EMTs and paramedics started in the 1960s in the United States. Before the 1960s, ambulances, particularly in small towns, were often hearses, owned by funeral homes and often manned by their employees. Called ambulance attendants, they may or may not have had any medical training or perhaps only first aid. In the 1950s, there was a push to have ambulance attendants get basic first aid training, and there was a push called Highway First Aid, which started around that time. Now, larger towns and cities had ambulance services, often owned by hospitals and run by them. The big change came in 1966. The National Academy of Sciences and the President's Commission on Highway Safety published a statement of policy. These are often called white papers. This policy was entitled Accidental Death and Disability, the Neglected Disease of Modern Society. This has since been also referred to as the white paper. In that scathing report, they detailed inadequate pre-hospital care and transport for trauma victims. The white paper pointed out that ambulances were typically poorly suited for the response to critically ill or injured and were usually poorly outfitted and had inadequate supplies on board. The report also detailed that there was no standard of training or requirements for the people on board the ambulances. President Johnson, after Congress passed a National Highway Safety Act of 1966, signed this bill. And this established the Department of Transportation and its daughter agency, the National Highway Safety Bureau. In 1970, that bureau was changed to the National Highway Traffic Administration. The concept of trained personnel responding in standardized vehicles quickly followed in the next few years in the 1960s. Various startups marked the initial training and use of trained ambulance crews. In Pittsburgh, where Dr. Peter Safer had pioneered rescue ventilation techniques, Walt Stoy and Dr. Nancy Caroline created a curriculum for training paramedics and started the Freedom House Enterprises Ambulance Service in some of the poorer neighborhoods of Pittsburgh. These pioneer paramedics did emergency runs for years until Pittsburgh City Council recognized their usefulness and pulled the concept into the better neighborhoods in Pittsburgh, and Freedom House eventually disbanded. In Seattle, using the new concept of defibrillation and CPR, the Medic One program for acute cardiac treatment was started and under the University of Washington and Harborview Medical Center, directed by Dr. Leonard Cobb, they established this service. In 1970, the Seattle Fire Department trained their first class of firefighters as paramedics. In 1970 also, a group worked 
nationally to complete the directive of President Johnson in 1966 to standardize training and examinations of emergency medical technicians, and they set up the EMT Ambulance Program and the National Registry of EMTs. Simultaneously, ambulance design and supplies requirements was taking place, leading to descriptions of minimal standards for various ambulance types. In Los Angeles, James O. Page rose through the ranks of the L.A. Fire Department to direct the establishment of the Fire Department paramedics in Los Angeles. Page became the technical advisor for the TV show Emergency, which began taping in 1971 and first aired in January 1972, just a couple of years after paramedics were recognized in the L.A. Fire Department. I detailed that TV show in another episode of this podcast. The president in 1973 signed the EMS Act of 1973, which provided money to establish EMS systems across the country and initiated formal BLS and EMS programs. This marks the distribution of standardized training and testing nationwide. Around this time, AT&T participated to establish a universal emergency phone number, 911. So, the EMS Act of 1973 set up a number of now ubiquitous facets of EMS. It standardized the minimum requirements in different classifications of ambulances. It set in motion standard curriculums for training EMTs and paramedics and the testing and recertification of them. It established guidelines for radio communications, and it addressed medical oversight and direction. In other words, the framework for modern EMS was set around 1973, less than 50 years ago. Obviously, some of these systems have evolved, and the system is still marked by different policies, procedures, and protocols for EMTs and paramedics to follow, sometimes from one EMS agency to another sometimes regionally or sometimes by state. I'm in West Virginia, and at last count, we are one of only 12 states with statewide EMT and paramedic protocols. Other states may have state protocol systems, but city or county or even agency protocols may supersede those state protocols. Let's consider now some of the different types of certified EMS personnel. The simplest breakdown is EMT, requiring about 100 hours of training and limited to physical management of patients. They don't start IVs and have very limited medication capabilities, such as epinephrine pens for anaphylaxis or naloxone for opioid overdoses. Paramedics have around 400 hours of training, all the EMT skills, plus IV medications and emergency airway management, such as uh, in introducing endotracheal tubes. And they also have advanced cardiac life support skills such as EKG and cardiac monitoring interpretation and can do electrical defibrillation or cardioversion. This division between EMTs and paramedics sets up whether an ambulance is EMT only or BLS, basic life support, or has paramedic capabilities and is ALS or advanced life support. Now, to complicate this further, training beyond the EMT level was introduced to train IV skills and some medication administration. Initially, these were EMTI or EMTIV capable 
EMTs, and this evolved to become EMTI or EMT Intermediate Level. The National Registry has discontinued support of this level and has replaced it with AEMT or Advanced EMT with similar additional skills above the EMT level. Another addition beyond basic EMT and paramedic is that since squads may be called to transport critically ill patients from one hospital to another, often those patients are already intubated or have advanced medications or life support devices in place, critical care transport paramedics or CCT paramedics have additional training or certification in those advanced capabilities. So let's summarize. Where were we in America? Well, in the dark ages of EMS, sort of the wild, wild west, with various levels of pre-hospital responses ranging from hearses or vans with untrained people running them, or rather well-equipped ambulances with doctors on board in large cities, these distinctions changed with the publication of the White Paper in 1966. Over the next six or seven years, standards were devised and programs developed to train, certify, and recertify EMTs and paramedics. Starting around 1968-1969, a few actual EMS agencies started in a few major cities, notably Pittsburgh, Seattle, Los Angeles, and Miami. In 1973, Formalized EMS rules and directives were set up, and our modern EMT and paramedic professions were established. Pre-hospital communication, the 911 emergency phone number, medical oversight and direction, ambulance standards, all of these resulted in that critical 10-year period from about 1966 to 1976. We could say that EMS overall in America may not be in its infancy, but it's certainly not old. Well, thanks again for listening, and I look forward to adding more episodes to the EMS History, Myth, and Media podcast. Stay safe, be well, and until next time, do good work out there.